and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. Longtime listeners might notice something very different at the beginning of this episode. I now have music for the Her Head in Films podcast. If you like the song and you want to know who it's by, it is a classical piece. It's by Felix Mendelssohn. It's his Songs Without Words, Opus 30, number one. It's a song that I've loved for years. It was featured in the film Sophie's Choice. It was part of the music, the soundtrack of that film. And ever since then, I've just been so in love with it. And so I'm really happy to have it as the music for my podcast now. And so it'll be the intro music. It'll be music... Um, in between, you know, to transition between different parts of the podcast, and you'll hear it at the end, and so I hope that you enjoy it. I've been wanting to add music to the podcast for a long time now, and I was finally able to, so I hope you enjoy it. So on this podcast, Her Head in Films, I share my thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. They tend to be art house and world cinema. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth discussion of the films that I love. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. Today's episode is about Michael Haneke's 2001 film, The Piano Teacher. I'm talking about this film because I want to explore Isabel Hubert's performance in the film. It's bold, it's brave, it's unforgettable, it's brutal. It's unlike any performance that I've ever seen in my life. And I first saw this film several years ago, and it has stayed with me ever since. And I had to talk about it. It's part of a series I will be doing about some of my favorite performances by women and I will share those uh, episodes with you in the coming weeks and talk about different actresses and the performances that just absolutely astonish me and Isabel Hubert's performance in The Piano Teacher is one of those. So I talk about the film in depth. I talk about, I really go through it scene by scene and talk about it and there are spoilers. I talk about the ending. I think it is best for you to see the film before you listen to this episode. I know some of you don't care about spoilers. I know it doesn't bother some of you, but for this film in particular, I would insist that you see the film first before you listen to this episode. I think that this film Everybody should experience this film for the first time in a pure way. Without knowing what's coming, without knowing what's going to happen. It's a violent film, it's a brutal film, but I think it's important and I think it has a lot to say. And that's what I talk about in this episode. And I hope that you'll listen to it and I hope that you'll get something out of it. Her Head in Films has a Patreon where you can financially support the podcast on a monthly basis and also access rewards and extras. You can find more information at patreon.com slash herheadinfilms. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash herheadinfilms. At one level, you get a shout out on each episode. First, I'd like to give a big welcome to my new patron, Juan. Thank you so much for being a patron. I'd also like to give a shout out to my longtime patrons Iris, Teal, JD, Vanessa, Spunden, Polina, 
Olivia, Carolyn, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, Michelle, and Lindsay. Her Head in Films is listener-supported, and I intend to keep it that way. So I thank all of you for being patrons. If financial support isn't an option, and I totally understand if it isn't, please consider reviewing the podcast on iTunes because reviews and ratings help people discover the podcast. Or you can tell your friends and followers about Her Head in Films. Or you can interact with me on social media. I'm on Facebook at Her Head in Films. I'm on Instagram at Her Head in Films. And you can find all of my social media accounts in the show notes of each episode. So I would love to interact with you if you'd like to. So now I'm going to talk all about the piano teacher. I'm going to give you a little bit of information about Michael Haneke and Isabel Hubert. Then I'm going to go scene by scene and, and delve very deeply into this film. is not an easy film to talk about. It's not an easy film to watch. But I do think it's one of those films that sears itself into your memory. And I came to this film when I was early in my art house cinema journey. I think I watched it around 2011 or 2012. And I really at that time was not prepared for it when I watched it. And I don't think you're ever fully prepared for a Michael Haneke film. But this one in particular is very violent. It's very brutal. It is a grueling experience to watch it. And I can only imagine that Isabel Hubert's performance as she was living it and doing it must have been very grueling on her mind and on her body. But Isabel is never afraid to delve into performances like this and to portray women like this. So before I got into the film, I wanted to give you a little bit of information about Michael Haneke and Isabel Hubert. I had planned to do a much more in-depth look at them, but things just sort of didn't work out that way for me. And I'm 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 not saying I'm rushing with this episode, but it's the end of the week and it just things have not come together for me with this episode. But what I've learned through doing this podcast on a regular basis, on a weekly basis, is that sometimes your best has to be enough and whatever you have to give is what you have to give. And so I do research and I do things, but there comes a point when I actually have to record the episode. And sometimes I have it and sometimes I don't. I don't know if I have it right now. Um, What I need to talk about this film. But I had done research. It got messed up and I don't have time to redo it. And so I'm just going to do my best with it. Anything that I have to say about Hanukkah and Hubert is really not any kind of substitute 
to reading their interviews, learning about them, reading books about them. And I obviously can't go that in depth with these people. I wish I could, but it's just not possible. So I thought I'd just give you an idea of some of their work and, and things about them. But um, what I really want this episode to be about and what I want it to be dedicated to fully is an in-depth analysis of the piano teacher. Like, I want to talk about this film. I want to go very deep into it, almost scene by scene at times. I'm definitely going to sort of go chronologically through the film, and I'm going to talk about certain scenes. And I'm going to talk about this character um, that Isabel Huber plays, named Erica Cohute. And she is a piano teacher, and, and... she is masochistic and there are very dark and disturbing and violent and troubling things that happen in this film and it's a very brutal film to watch and to put yourself through but i have put myself through it about two times now because i first watched it around 2011 2012 and now i'm watching it again with a new set of eyes you know after watching art house cinema for years now since 2011 being very serious about art house cinema i do i don't know if i see the film differently but i am excited to be able to talk about it and so that's where i want most of my focus to go but i will talk a few moments about hanukkah and hubert even though there's not really much that i have to contribute that other reviewers or other writers have not already um, written uh, and with much more insight and much more depth than I could ever have. But Michael Haneke is a Austrian director. He was born in 1942 and so he's 76 years old right now as I record this episode in 2018. He's someone I've seen several of his films. I've seen The Piano Teacher as you can tell. I've seen The White Ribbon and I've seen Amour. And those are the three films by him that I've seen. And all of them sort of represent, um, I would say, a pretty bleak view of life. And all of them are difficult to watch, but The Piano Teacher in particular and Amour is really intense. And I won't give away what happens in that. Obviously, with my review of The Piano Teacher, there's going to be spoilers. And I'm going to talk about this film. And so if you haven't seen it, you need to see it because it will be ruined for you. It just will be. There's The ending is very shocking. So I would urge you to watch the film. It's on Filmstruck right now. And I'm sure it's available for you to rent anywhere, I would think. But it is on Filmstruck if you subscribe to that website uh, in the United States. And um, so... Hanukkah's films are always concerned with violence. That is one of his main focuses or his primary focus. And a big film of his is called Funny Games. I haven't seen that one, but it is one of his more important films that he's made. And um, it's also on Filmstruck if you want to seek it out. But I've heard that it's very violent. It's very difficult to watch. And The Piano Teacher is very similar in that way. His work is concerned with violence. I think he's concerned with... He's not concerned with the why. He's not interested in giving reasons for people's violence necessarily or having it all come together in a nice bow at the end. 
I think he's more concerned with um, how violence affects people and also how um, violence gets represented in popular culture, how we as people, you know, through the internet, through television, through movies also, are very desensitized to violence. And I think that his films purposely are trying to shock people and are purposely trying to be brutal because I think he wants to wake his audience up. He doesn't want them to sort of silently accept um, violence and accept what's happening in the world. Another big film of his, I think, is called Code Unknown, which has Juliette Binoche in it, and there's Cachet, um, which I have not seen, and I haven't seen Code Unknown. There's so many films that I have not seen, so I still have a lot of Hanukkah to explore. I like his work, even though it's brutal, and I guess one would ask, why would you put yourself through his films? Why would you put yourself through something like The Piano Teacher? I can't quite explain it, but I am drawn to films that are critiquing violence, that are exploring violence, that are trying to shock and awaken audiences. Um, too often in films, violence becomes spectacle. Violence becomes, um, you know, something that is titillating or that turns people on and... I think somebody like Hanukkah is not trying to do that at all. <laughs> He's trying to uh, make violence real to people. And on the Filmstruck website, and I think this is also included in the Criterion Collection DVD um, of The Piano Teacher, he talks about how he looks, he thinks that this kind of violence that titillates and that becomes spectacle is pornographic that to him that is what is real pornography he he wants to make us i think these are my thoughts i think he wants to make us sensitive to violence again to make us feel it and i talked a bit about this in a previous episode on guillermo del toro's film pan's labyrinth which has a great deal of violence because it takes place a few years after the spanish civil war and it's about a little girl or a 12 or 13 year old girl trying to navigate this world of violence and fear. And in an interview for that film on my DVD, it was like an extra feature. Del Toro said something very similar to what Hanukkah said in that he did not want to do violence as a spectacle. He wanted to make the audience feel it. He wanted to shock them. He didn't want to titillate or turn them on. He wanted to disgust them and make them feel that violence instead of being turned on by it or um, or being sort of seduced by uh, this violence. And I think that's what Hanukkah is often trying to do with his films. They're brutal, but sometimes I want to watch a brutal film. There's an experience to it. You're, I think you feel things that you don't often feel in your everyday life, that it sort of shocks you. It's it's almost like electroshock to your body and your mind. And I think certain films remind us of the power of cinema, of what it can do. And I certainly believe that with Hanukkah. And his work is so meticulous. And The Piano Teacher is very meticulous 
in the way the shots are set up. And he often does long shots or long sequences where he's not editing things together. The actors are performing a scene within that moment. And it's not being edited in any way. You're seeing them talk to each other and interact with each other. You're not seeing a lot of reverse shots and things like that. They are in that moment doing that scene. And there is one in the piano teacher in particular where it's like seven minutes and there is no cutting. It is one continuous scene that the actors had to perform. And what it takes to do that, you know, both actors have to be completely in sync and on point and know their lines and know what they want, know what they're supposed to do. And it just makes those scenes even more intense. Um, So he's very much an auteur in the traditional sense. He writes all of his own films. He often comes up with those stories himself. The Piano Teacher is the only of his feature films to be adapted from a novel. He did do some adaptations because he worked in television uh, for a while. And then he got to make feature films. And I think he's going to come out soon with a serialized thing. Like, I don't know if you'd call it a mini-series or or something like that. But he is going to work with the serialized format, which will be interesting to see. I don't know a lot about it right now. But, um... So he writes his own films. It's very important to him to write them. But The Piano Teacher was very different. It's based on a book by the same name, by Elfried Jelinek. And she's a Nobel Prize literature uh, laureate. And she wrote The Piano Teacher, and it was released in 1983. And I have not read the book. I've heard that the book is even more brutal than the film which is very hard to believe, but he changed a lot of things. And um, he said the only way that he would make the film, because at first he was approached to write the screenplay for somebody else, and that person was never able to secure funding for the film. And so it came into Hanukkah's lap, and he said that the only way he would direct it is if Isabel Hubert played the main character, the piano teacher, Erica Cohute. And um, she agreed, and it was the first time that she worked with Hanukkah, and since then she's worked with Hanukkah several more times. She was in Amour, and she was in Happy End, which is Hanukkah's most recent film. So um, this was the first time he was adapting a novel, but he still made the material his own, and that was really important to him. And Elfried Jelinek had seen the film. It's interesting Um, Jelinek said that the book was actually autobiographical in some ways, that some of it is based on her own relationship with her mother, which is intense. (laughs) This is a film and it's a book about a mother-daughter relationship that is very disturbing in some ways. And I'll talk about that when I get into my full analysis. So to know that it was based on autobiographical stuff is very interesting, I think. And as Hanukkah was filming The Piano Teacher, and it came out in 2001, I don't think I mentioned the year, as he was filming it, Jelinek's mother actually died. And so it took Jelinek a while to even watch the film. It was just too intense for her. And um, that was very odd timing, I think. But um, So 
Hanukkah borrows from the book, but he, he changes a lot of things. And he says in that Criterion Collection interview that there was much more backstory for Erica in the book, that we have more of a sense of her childhood and how she has become the woman that she's become. But I actually think it works in the film's favor that we don't know Erica's backstory. I think it... I think it's more powerful for some reason. I mean, I think a part of me was wondering the whole time, why is she like this? What has happened to make her like this? What has happened between her and her mother? Why is their relationship this way? But I think it, that mystery also works. Um, and that you can sort of make up in your mind why Erica acts the way that she does. And sometimes our childhood is not the key to who we are. Sometimes people become very violent or very bad and they had fine childhoods and nothing in particular happened to them so Hanukkah is never trying to give you like a reason for why his characters do what they do I think he's more interested in interested in examining that violence trying to make audiences awake and alert to that violence but I don't think he's always trying to give you reasons or messages or anything like he says I read some interviews and he hates message films he's not trying to send you a message or anything he's not trying to tell you what to think and he has said this in interviews he wants you to think for yourself and in the show notes I'll share some of the interviews that I read um, from him um, he's a fascinating man and Unfortunately, even though he's very intellectual and smart, and I think he's genius personally, I do love his work, he had some very disappointing and outmoded viewpoints on the Me Too movement. And I'm actually going to do a bonus episode for my patrons on Patreon. And it's going to be about what Hanukkah had to say about the Me Too movement. And it's going to be about my reaction and my response to what he has to say. Because he did an interview where he talked about it. And it was really disappointing to me what he had to say. So um, if if you're a patron where you get to listen to my extra episodes, if you're on that level, then you'll get to hear that. And um I look forward to sharing my thoughts about it because it really upset me. So if you want to hear my thoughts about that, you'll have to become a patron. Um, now I want to talk about Isabel Hubert. What can you even say about Isabel Hubert? Like, I'm not the person to do this. Like, I admire her. I think she's a great actress. She's one of my favorite actresses. I was really glad um when recently she did get an oscar nomination for her film l and um because it finally brought her sort of more global recognition or more mainstream recognition and the same thing has sort of happened with agnes varda when she got her oscar nomination and she got her honorary oscar it sort of took her mainstream i remember one day i was watching e-news because i watch e um, e the entertainment network here in the United States which is it's like a entertainment news network and they also show a lot of reality tv unfortunately but they have like this daily show that's about like 
entertainment news, right? And I still remember uh, an episode they talked about Agnes Varda. And I think it was when she got her honorary Oscar. It was when she was with Angelina Jolie and they were like dancing. And I was like, Agnes has made it. She's on E! News. <laughs> she has officially gone mainstream. And it felt that way with Isabel Huppert a bit when she got her Oscar nomination. She's much more mainstream. Although many people do probably know her from the film Heaven's Gate. That was a big film for her years ago. It was widely panned at the time, but it's now considered like a masterpiece. I haven't seen Heaven's Gate, so I can't give my opinion about that. But she is this just icon. She is such a legend. She was born in 1953. She's 65 years old as I'm recording this. So she's in her mid-60s. She's been acting for over 40 years. She's been nominated or won just about every award, acting award, that you can possibly be nominated for. There is a Wikipedia page that is so long of the nominations and wins that she has been given as an actress. It has its own Wikipedia page. That's how many awards she's won or been nominated for. So this woman is exceptional. And um, the thing is, is that she works at a feverish pace. She does four to five films every year. And when she's not filming, she's on the theater. She's on the theater stage doing all kinds of different um, different projects. So she's on the theater stage um, doing plays. And then she's also doing films. The woman never stops. She is indefatigable, right? She's indomitable. And she feels like a force of nature to me. But she's always taking on roles that are just so fascinating and different. And if you think about it, she takes on the piano teacher when she's 40. You know, I mean, th the thing about Isabel is that while a lot of actresses, when they hit 40, um, the roles can dry up, you know, or it can be harder to get roles. It seems like with Isabel, that's not a problem at all. If anything, as she got older, she got better roles and she got her best role when she was in her 40s with the piano teacher. This film put Michael Haneke on the map. He was already known for funny games and um, and um, like Benny's video, I think, was a big one, too. But funny games was his big one. But the piano teacher is what led to his international acclaim. And um, I would guess that it also sort of brought Isabel Hubert more attention as well. And so these two together are. A very powerful force but this film is about Isabel Hubert through and through and that's why I wanted to talk about it because I'm trying to explore films that have women performances by women that I just really love and that I think are really great and this is definitely one of them this is like in my top 10 of performances by women I think it's one of the greatest acting performances of all time I mean for me the greatest is Falconetti in The Passion of Joan of Arc and I think that Hubert, in certain moments, reaches that almost, especially the end of this film, which I'll talk more about. But even though Isabel has done so many roles and she's so famous, she's also very mysterious in a lot of ways. Um, we don't know a lot about her. We, we don't know a lot about her personal life or her childhood. Um, 
we know she has three children. She grew up in a suburb of Paris. Um, you know, she had money growing up. She wasn't, she wasn't working class. She wasn't struggling. Um, but she plays characters that are just all over the map who have so many different experiences that are very different from her own. Um, and that's what makes her great. And I've read interviews about her and interviews that she's done about her acting process. And she says it's just a lot of thinking. <laughs> I remember one I read and I still can't find it. She says that she likes to nap a lot. That part of her process of preparing for a role is napping <laughs> and thinking. And um, I find that fascinating. You know, like she's not a method actor from what I can tell. There was this one interview I read where she was like horrified by like Daniel Day-Lewis and the lengths that he goes to to get into character. You know, for Phantom Thread, he learned how to become a clothing designer and things like that. That's not what Isabel does. Isabel does not do that. I mean, obviously for the piano teacher, she had to learn how to play piano. And for the Criterion Collection, she did an interview where she said that she learned piano when she was a child. But she didn't really keep it up. So she obviously had to sort of relearn it for the film. But it seems like part of her process is just thinking very deeply about the character. And sort of letting herself enter this character. And I would also say she's very much of a minimalist with her acting. That something she's known for is not a lot of expression. Is not gesticulating and being very demonstrative. She's known for what she withholds. She's she's known for um, the, I don't know what the word would be, but just the lack of emotion sometimes in her and the way she can be cold and icy and not show a lot of emotion. Um, but often it's not that she's not showing emotion. I wouldn't say that. It's the way that she conveys emotion. And I think this is what makes her so great. She's not doing it through like really big, loud gestures. You know, think of the early silent films, the way acting was back then. People were so extreme because they didn't have words and they were trying to convey things easily so that the audience could understand it. So you have very exaggerated facial expressions and all of this. Isabel's the complete opposite of, of that kind of acting that's very um, demonstrative. This is acting that's much more interior. That's what I would say that Isabel is doing, is that she's sort of mining the interiority of a character. And she's conveying that character not really through big actions or anything like that, but through subtle gestures or her eyes or her face in very subtle ways that you don't always catch. So her acting is minimal, but it's very powerful because I think in everyday life, I think her acting is much more true to everyday life that when we're out in public, when we're around people, we don't tend to be really um, outspoken or very expressive with our emotions that we tend to keep things inside and we might not express those things until we're in a private moment and um, 
or sometimes you don't react to intense situations the way that you think you would. That times when you think you would cry, you don't cry. And then times when you think um, you wouldn't cry, you do cry. And I think Hubert's performances sort of tap into that of the, like the erratic nature of emotion, the erratic nature of human, of human beings and the way we express ourselves, that it doesn't always follow a formula. And so I think her acting has a lot of moments of revelation because of that that she can tap into a character in a very deep way and show us something that we haven't seen before or we haven't felt before and my introduction to Isabel Hubert was the piano teacher I had not seen her in anything else up to then now since then I've seen many of her films from Elle to um, Amour to Ma Mare, which she's in with Louis Garrel. That's a, another very sexually intense film. Um, what else have I seen? I've seen her film uh, that she was in where she played a Bronte sister. I've seen Story of Women. She worked with Claude Chabrol several times. Uh, La Ceremonie, which is one of my favorite films, and I did an episode about it. She's really good in La Ceremony. That's another film where she does things that you wouldn't expect. Um, that's one of her greatest performances, I think, for sure. Um, but yeah, Isabel's just a treasure, right? Like, I mean, maybe everybody doesn't love her, but I surely love her. And I think she's a really great actress. But I do think that her towering achievement is the piano teacher. And what she does in this film and I chose this film this this week for a particular reason because I talked about Yasujiro Ozu's late spring last week or in the previous episode and that film is about a father and daughter who are very close and the father is a widower and the daughter's played by Setsuko Hara it's it's a night it's a film from 1949 and it's uh set in Japan, obviously, by Ozu. But if you're not familiar with it, you know, that's where it's set. Setsuko Hara plays a girl named Noriko, and she's 27 years old. And it's time that she should be getting married and leaving her father, who lives alone, who would be alone without her. She lives with him at that time, and they're very close. And they have a deep and loving connection with each other. And she doesn't want to leave. She doesn't want to get married. She wants to stay with her father and take care of him and have a life with him, but he refuses to let her do that. He lies and pretends that he's going to get remarried so that she will get married and have a life with a husband, a life of her own separate from him. And I talked a lot about this film and why it moved me so much, but I thought that choosing the piano teacher for my next episode after that one, because I do think about sometimes how these episodes interact with each other, even though listeners may not pick up on the themes or connections, but I do. I was thinking about how the piano teacher is very much a counterpoint to late spring, that it's, it's, I'm not saying that, that both are similar in any way, but in the piano teacher, we have a relationship between a mother and a daughter, so we have another parental relationship as we did in late spring. But what we have is what happens when the daughter doesn't leave. 
when she lives with the parent and what can happen and what can come of that. And that sometimes it can be very ugly. Now, in my episode on late spring, I talked about how close I am to my mom and how I've chosen to live with her and to stay with her, even though I'm 28 years old and I'm not interested in getting married and dating and having some kind of separate life from her that my life is with her. And that's the decision that I've made. I have a really close relationship with my mom. My relationship with my mom is nothing like Erica's relationship with her mother and the piano teacher. But at the same time, this film is a portrait of two women who almost have this toxic codependency. Two women who are wounded, I think, in some way. And there's some kind of trauma or damage there. But these two women cannot separate themselves from each other and they end up almost destroying each other at times. Um, Can you be too close to a parent? I think it raises that question of what happens when you can't separate yourself from a parent? What is what are the consequences of that? You know? Um, And so I just thought it was an interesting counterpoint to late spring because Um, you know, what if Noriko had stayed with her father? Would it have become toxic? Would it have become violent and hurtful the way that it has become with Erica and her mother? Um, Because Erica's 40 in her 40s. And she's what many people would term a spinster or an old maid. She's a woman who teaches piano to other students and who has repressed her sexual desires and urges, and who has very masochistic, violent desires and fantasies. But she's a woman who has repressed that for so long. And her relationship with her mother is very disturbing. And it's, it's very central to this film. Um, It's about these two women who are really sort of locked in this relationship. And the how do I just talk about this it's like it's just the two of them in that apartment in that film and like what happens in that world when there's only two people and how intense that can get and how toxic that can get at times Erica is repressed obviously very sexually repressed but she's in fan she's infantile in many ways it's like she never grew up but she's always trying to control her emotions there is this little girl aspect to her this innocent aspect to her and yet there's this very dirty disturbing perverse sadistic side of her self-destructive side of her and when I saw Isabel Hubert in this film it was like a revelation like I could not believe what she had done, what she had put in this film, the heart, the soul. I think it's a brave performance. I think it's blistering. I think it's bold. I think it's brazen. All the bees, breathtaking. I think it is one of the greatest performances of all time because of what she put into that role and what she accessed through it. Because I think it would be very easy to see Erica as weird and strange and 
and so different from us that we could never find anything in her that's redeemable or that's connected to us. And I think the very opposite happens. I think when I watched the piano teacher, I saw much more of myself in Erica than I would ever care to admit. I mean, no, I'm not doing anything that Erica did. But Isabel Hubert brings out certain things about Erica that I think are very relatable, like her, like her vulnerability, her fear of intimacy, her fear of losing herself in a relationship or in sex. And this episode is going to be graphic and it's going to be sexual because I have to. I mean, that's what the film's about. But I'm the last person that should be talking about this stuff. I swear to you, I'm not your I'm not a sex therapist, okay? I what there's like all of them out there now. I can't think of any of them. Yeah, I, I'm not who you go to for sex advice, okay? I don't know anything about this stuff. But I want to talk about it. And I have to because it's in the film. So just be warned that it I'm sorry, but I have to go there. I mean, for me, Hubert is really playing a woman who's trying to obliterate herself. I think at every turn, she's trying to obliterate herself. And that's what she succeeds in at the end. But what are the things that created Erica? We don't know her backstory, but we have some clues. And so the world that created Erica is the world that also destroyed her. This world of like the upper echelon, you know, these very intellectual, refined, rich, this rich world, right, of piano recitals and this world that requires extreme discipline and extreme repression and per, and, and expects perfection from piano players, pianists, right? And how could Erica really be herself in that environment, I wonder? And I don't know the full role of her mother, but her mother is very possessive and very controlling. And Erica is not able to resist that, and she's not able to free herself of that. So these women, I think, have a very toxic, codependent relationship. Um, but Erica is also, I think, destroyed by men. And I'm going to talk a lot in, uh, about the gender relations in this film and how I think this film is looking at gender relations. I think it is looking at the way sex plays out for men and women in very different ways. And what happens when a woman tries to be dominant, a woman tries to have some form of control in that sexual interaction. How is she punished? How is... How is she, um, how is she punished? I mean, that's really the key, I think. How is she disrespected? How is she forced to be submissive rather than dominant? You know, to be, to surrender rather than to seduce. We don't allow women to have power when it comes to sex. We don't want women to have power. And I think Erica is a character that dares to try to have power. And I'll go deeper into that when I get there. But the film opens with Erica coming home late and her mother confronting her about where she's been for three hours. So we, we get immediately, 
here is a woman in her 40s. Why is her mother interrogating her because she comes home late? Why is she even living with her mother at this age? Um, her mother starts to rummage through her handbag. And so immediately we get a sense of the relationship between this mother and daughter that will be so um, central to the film as it unfolds. And Erica starts to pull at her mother's hair. This is a very violent interaction between the two of them, but between the two of them. And I think it immediately piques our interest of what is going on here between these two women. Why is this happening? Where is this violence coming from? It's really this violent eruption from Erica when she attacks her mother. Now later they're crying together and Erica apologizes. And so I think we see how toxic uh, this relationship is, how abnormal it is that, that she would hit her mother that way and treat her mother that way. And then the mother would just forgive her. And the two of them would sort of go on like nothing had happened and they hold each other and her mother says, quote, that's just how we are. We're a hot-blooded family, unquote. And no, you're not a hot-blooded family. Something's wrong here. Uh, something's very, very wrong here between the two of these women. And it's not, it's not right. It's not good for either of them. And Erica and her mother even sleep in bed together. They have twin beds that are right beside each other in the same room so there's always for me with Erica this sense of claustrophobia almost of this woman who is always being watched, is always being monitored, is always being controlled by her mother. But at the same time, she submits to it because she's in her 40s. She could move out. She could have a different life. But she continues to live with her mother almost like she can't imagine an alternative. She can't imagine a life where she's not controlled by her mother. And in fact, maybe she needs that control. She needs to be dominated in that way. She doesn't know who she is without it. She has to always be in control of her emotions. And perhaps she feels like her mother is what helps her stay in control. That without her mother's power over her, maybe she could lose some kind of control. Because... Also, the way I see Erica, I see her as a character who is deeply intellectual, who is almost trapped in her intellect, who cannot escape her mind. And she's always in her mind. That is her strength is that she is very intelligent. And so she denies the emotional part of herself. She's not connected to her emotions. She doesn't seem to be connected to her sexuality or her desire or her body. I think, in fact, she fears those things because sexual desire, sexuality, sexual pleasure, falling in love, those are things that are profoundly destabilizing. Those are things that make us come undone, that unravel us. Um, that are frightening in there in the way that they disorganize us and um, how we feel out of control. And I think Erica is terrified of that. She is terrified of not being in control of herself. And she has to control every situation that she is in. And she has to 
perform her dominance over other people. Um, especially her students, obviously, and sometimes even her mother. Um, and that's something of myself that I see in Erica is that need to stay in control and that fear of things that make her feel out of control, that fear of things. Yeah. That fear of people. I think it's a fear of people as well. And I have that, like, I feel very terrified of not being in control of myself or my emotions. And I feel very terrified of being hurt or taken advantage of by people. And um, it's something that I really struggle with. Like, I don't really like to be vulnerable with people. I don't really like to interact with people. Um, I, I think it's also why I don't have any kind of interest in romance or anything like that. Like I don't date. I don't, I'm not interested in marriage. And that's something that I talked about in my episode on late spring. And I think part of that comes from this fear of being hurt by someone by letting somebody in and being hurt by them or being abandoned by them um, or letting someone see that part of me and letting someone make me a mess or letting someone make me lose control. Um, I think that really scares me and frightens me. And I think it's the same with Erica. I really do. And so that's a, that's a part of Erica that I found really interesting and compelling because I myself have always defined myself in terms of my intellect and always saw myself as a very intellectual person and always felt very disconnected from my body and and things like that and always feared being out of control I don't even drink I don't drink alcohol because I am terrified of being out of control you know other people do drugs or they do marijuana or they drink alcohol I don't do any of that because I'm terrified of being out of control and not having dominance I guess over my over myself but at the same time I would say I'm very different from Erica because I am very emotional that even though I think for a long time especially when I was younger I always made straight A's I was always like this high achiever when I was in school and it was the same thing when I was in college I mean I graduated with honors and um I didn't really try though so I'm very different from Erica I was not disciplined when I was in school, I got straight A's really without even having to try very much at it. I was just a curious person. I loved learning. I loved school. I loved writing. You know, I craved knowledge always, and I still do. But I think for a long time, I did define myself in terms of my intellect, because that became so much of my identity. It was that, oh, I was a straight A student. I was really smart. I wasn't pretty. I'm still not pretty. I wasn't attractive like most girls are supposed to be, right? As women, we're supposed to be desirable and beautiful, and we're not really supposed to be smart. We're not supposed to be anything except these sort of sexual objects for men. Well, I was never like that. I never felt like that. I never got male attention. I always, all that I really had was my intellect and my mind, and that was how I defined myself that, well, I don't have prettiness and I'm not funny and I'm not, you know, beautiful and all that, but, but I'm smart, you know, but I think 
over the last few years, I've gotten much more in, in touch with my emotions. And I've become a very emotional person. And that's something that I think comes through in the podcast. That I'm trying to talk about feelings and emotions. And I don't know if I was always that way. I was someone who was much more intellectual. But I think I'm starting to discover or to embrace the more emotional part of myself. Of course, Erica cannot do that. Erica is not emotional. She's terrified of her emotions. And she's terrified of losing control of those emotions. And um, the way that I think she stays in control and dominant is through the way that she treats other people. And that comes through when she is teaching her students. And I even noticed that when she was in the piano teacher mode with her students, her voice was deeper. I think Isabel Hubert maybe did that. But it, if you watch the film, it seems like her voice is much deeper when she is tutoring her students. Um, I guess it's a way for her to have that power and that control. And she's extremely critical of her students. Um, she rarely praises them. She only uh, criticizes them. Um, so Erica is this very in control, disciplined, rigorous person. And her world is really, I think, turned upside down and undone by the introduction of a very important character in this film, who is Walter Clemmer. And, um, Walter is played by Benoit Magimel. And he's very attractive in this film. <laughs> he is athletic, athletically built, blonde hair, beautifully chiseled face. He's a very good looking man. You can't deny it. He's gorgeous, really. Um, I don't think I've seen him in any other film. I think he might have been in Little White Lies. Um, that's a French film that Marion Cotillard stars in. Um, I think he was in that film, but he's mainly known for the piano teacher, right? And he's very beautiful in this film. And I think Erica is, um, at first she's very wary of him and his entrance into her life is very destabilizing because that's what happens with love and sexual desire. It completely, um, can upend our lives and upend our world especially for someone like Erica who is always battling to keep control over her emotions Walter is sort of immediately infatuated with Erica and he's very turned on he meets her at a recital where she's playing piano they both share an interest in Schubert um who was a composer I don't know a lot about classical music personally um, but the two of them are interested in the same composers. Walter, even though he's young, I would say he's about 20, you know, 21. Maybe he was older. I don't know. But he looks very young. Um, he's much more knowledgeable about classical music than most people his age. And he strikes up a conversation with Erica and he's drawn to her. Um, and the whole time I watched this film, especially the second time I was watching it, what interested me more the second time than the first time, I think, was what does Walter get out of this? Why is Walter so consumed by her, even when he knows 
how dark her fantasies are and dark her desires are. He continues to engage with her. And maybe there's something wrong with him too. Like that he keeps pursuing her. Um, but obviously his own darkness comes out um, at the end of this film. And so they do have a lot in, co- lot in common, the two of them. And when she's talking to Walter, something very interesting comes out about her life. And that is that her father died in an asylum. And she sort of just says it offhandedly. You know, it's it's not some big revelation. But I think I missed that the first time that I watched it. And so when I saw it this time, and she, and Erica just you know, casually mentions that her father died in an asylum, I thought, well, that's very interesting. And that could have some kind of, obviously that had an impact on Erica in some way. And at that same recital, Walter also performs and he, he was going to perform another song by another composer. But after he talks to Erica and they're talking about their mutual love of um, Schubert, he plays Schubert. And um, it's almost like he's trying to seduce her through this music. And um, so he is immediately pursuing her. He is immediately interested in her. Um, Erica at that recital is really watching him play. And I love the close-ups in this film. I love how something's happening but we're not really watching what's happening. Hanukkah shows us Erica. He shows us Erica watching things. Isabel Hubert watching things in particular. And as she's watching Walter play this music, I was really reminded of the fragility of Hubert's performance. Um, that Erica's brutality and her violence are often hidden And like so many women, Erica hides those darker parts of herself. But there's this light in her eyes. Um, Like there's something flickering in her eyes, like this flame. And so Erica, for me, is always a character who seems calm. And she seems disciplined. And she seems like she has it all together. But she's really seething underneath And so I think there is a fire somewhere in her and some of those flames can be seen in her eyes, I think, and in the way Isabel Hubert plays her. And so obviously I have to talk about some of Erica's sexual proclivities, right? I still remember this scene so viscerally when I first saw it because this is a deeply sexual film and it's really hard to do sex in film it's it's just very difficult to get to the nuances of sex and sexuality in a film it's so rarely done well i think um without it becoming pornography or without it becoming exploitative but i do think the piano teacher looks at sex in In a compelling way, I would say. And so it's so crazy 
to see Erica, this very modest, refined woman, right? To in this film see her, because up to this point, we know nothing about really Erica's sexual interests. This is the first time in the film that she is showing that or that it's being revealed to us. And she goes into a porn store. That's the only way I can describe it. I don't know what the term is for these stores, but it's like a porn place. There's magazines, there's booths where people watch porn. And she goes into one of these booths and she's watching a woman giving a blowjob to a man. And I have to say these things. I'm sorry. Cover your ears. Please cover your ears. <laughs> I feel t I feel weird. I feel like I'm your grandmother talking about sex with you. Um, I know you don't think of me this way at all. Um, but her face is so animated. I think it's the most animated it's ever been when she's watching this porn. And so through her face... Isabel Huber says so much about this character. You know, when she's watching Walter play piano, she's very, she's trying to hide her emotions. But when she's in the darkness and in the privacy of this porn booth, away from her mother, away from everybody, her face is much more animated. And I don't think she's quite as afraid to show her emotions and her arousal and her excitement. And when she's in this booth, and I still remember this, she picks up a wad of tissue that's in there and just inhales it. She inhales this tissue. Like this smell is just the best thing she's ever smelled. I still remember this scene. Like I could not believe it because you know what's on that tissue. You know. But watching this film for the second time, I mean, it, this could be my third time. I don't know. But I don't purposely put myself through a film like this. I would say a similar film that comes to mind that is just sort of agonizing to watch would be L.M. Klimov's Come and See. And I have an episode about that film. And it's about war and violence. But this is about a much more sort of private violence, I think, sort of an interior violence, a violence of the soul, right? Uh, the violence we can inflict on each other in very, like, personal ways, the way Erica does. But I think what struck me about this scene when she's watching the porn and smelling the tissue, it's so abject. It's so gross to pick up someone's tissue like that, that they've used. What struck me was her loneliness. Yeah. And how she can't touch a person, so she has to touch this tissue. That the tissue is a proxy for a person. That the tissue contains probably seminal fluid. Um, and instead of being with a man and being able to touch that and have that, she can only have this tissue that the tissue is like a substitute or a stand-in for real intimacy and real sex that she can't engage in, that she can only watch voyeuristically or secondhand through an old tissue on the floor. Her everyday life is so devoid of love and con and connection. Um, and what she does in this porn store is so obviously different from her everyday life of piano recitals and stuffy interactions with the elite people of the fine arts. 
this is such a different world, and yet she almost feels more at home in the porn booth than she does at the piano recital. Like, she almost feels more, seems more animated and more alive while she's doing this. So I think for Erica, even though she's repressed in a lot of ways, I think she's also a woman for whom sex and her sexuality and her desire, she deeply feels it. Like, she's deeply obsessed with sex. And we see this later on in the film when we when she brings out a box that has all kinds of uh, ropes and chains in it. This is a woman who has a very rich, imaginative, intense fantasy life. That there is this other part of her, her sexuality, that she, that is a huge part of her and that she doesn't know how to express and that she hasn't found a channel to express it. Because she doesn't feel safe expressing it. She doesn't feel safe telling anyone her dark desires, right? And she thinks with Walter that she has found that person. But this is a woman for whom sex is actually very important. And her sexuality is sort of a cornerstone of who she is. It's a huge, huge part of her. It's a secret part of her. It's a hidden and repressed part of her, but it's a huge part of her. And Walter auditions to be in her class. And uh, Isabel Hubert talked about this scene in her interview, and I think Hanukkah did too in his Criterion interview. But this scene where Walter is auditioning is really the scene that she sort of falls in love with him. That the whole time she's sort of trying to resist it, she's listening to him play the piano again. And I can't remember if he's playing Schubert. He might be. But he's auditioning to get into her class or to get into this academy. And she, he, will be her, he will be her student as a result. And she wants, I think, to reject him. But as he starts to play, and it's all in Isabel Hubert's face, that that is the moment, I think, when she realizes what she feels for him. And her emotions for him. And so there's another scene. And I have to talk about these scenes. But this was also a very intense scene to watch. Where she's in the bathroom. And she is cutting her genitals. Um, I don't. They don't fully show it. She's just sitting on the rim of the tub. And the blood starts to drip down. It's not clear if she's she's using a razor blade, but I don't know if she's cutting the vagina or the labia or what she is doing exactly. But she is inflicting harm on herself. She is a cutter. She is someone who does harm to her own body, which I think fits this character very well. But I think she's a woman filled with rage. Like, I also get that about Erica, that she is, first of all, deeply alone. I don't know if I've seen loneliness depicted in quite this way on, on film. That this is a woman profoundly alone, who cannot feel connection to others, and cannot feel love for others. And I do wonder what happened to her to make her like that. But at the same time, I wonder what happened to me. 
Because again, this is a part of Erica that I relate to, is my complete inability to connect with other people and the complete absence of love in my life except for my relationship with my mom because we were, were very close. But I have no nobody else. It's that she is my primary emotional support and she's really all I have. And so again... I'm not as extreme as Erica. I'm not self-harming. I don't do stuff like that. I certainly don't go to porn shops. I promise you. But um, I can relate to the loneliness of her. That she can't connect. She can't be intimate. She can't give herself to that. She's too terrified. And she can't feel love for other people. She does not love Walter. I don't believe that. And I certainly don't believe Walter loves her. I don't think either of these two people are capable of love <laughs> at all. But I get the loneliness and I also get the fury of Erica of look what my life is. You know, this is not the way my life was supposed to go. I have the sense about Erica that she wasn't really supposed to be a piano teacher. She was probably supposed to be some great pianist, right? playing you know uh carnegie hall or something i don't know what a pianist does i don't know i don't know like what's considered the big moment for a pianist um but maybe she was supposed to be great you know and instead she's teaching like these kids she's teaching like teenagers and stuff is this really where she wanted her life to go or what she wanted it to be? I don't have the sense that she does. And she's living with her mom and she she doesn't have a lot going on in her life. She's going to porn shops, you know. What has her life turned out to be? It's certainly probably not what she dreamed of when she was a teenage girl. So I think there's a fury in Erica, possibly about what her life has become and the things that have happened to her and that have been done to her, especially over the course of this film. So she's this person who's just seething, as I said before, that there is this, this bonfire or something, this conflagration in her body that is going to eat her alive, that is going to consume her and kill her because she cannot escape it. She's deeply, deeply wounded. And there is a pain and a damage in her that I also relate to. That when traumatic things happen in your life, they become part of your body and they take over your body and your mind. And I see that in Erica. I see that fragility. I see that loneliness. I see that pain. Um... I see that aching. There's like an aching in Erica, right? She's aching for someone who will accept her and understand her for all that she is with all like the very deep disturbing parts of her. Um, and I think maybe she thinks that's Walter or that Walter can do that. I don't know why she thinks Walter's capable of that. I think it's I think it's clear from the beginning Walter can't do that. Walter's pathetic. I can't stand Walter. I'm just going to be honest. Um it was interesting cuz in that 
Criterion interview, Michael Haneke said that in the book, The Piano Teacher by Elfried Yelenek, um, Walter is just an asshole. <laughs> and that he, in the film, he didn't want him to be an asshole. But he comes off like an asshole. Um, but that scene of her cutting herself with a razor blade, you get the depths of this woman's pain and how much she hates herself. She truly hates herself. I can relate to that too. <laughs> I hate myself and I've always struggled with that my entire life. This woman has a lot of layers. That's the thing about Erica. You obviously may not relate to her going to porn shops and sniffing tissues and, you know, attacking her mother violently. There are parts of her that are so odious and abhorrent and um, atrocious, right? Just these terrible, terrible parts of Erica. But then there are these much more tender um, parts of her. Um, that aching, that loneliness, that fury, that emptiness. There's almost something very empty about her at times, I think. Um, she often berates her students. And at one of those porn stores, she sees one of her students, her male students. And later on, the next day or a few days later, they're doing a lesson. And she really berates him. And she's mad at him for looking at porn and she says something about men. I didn't write the full quote down. Um, but I got the sense that she distrusts men very much. And um, that there's maybe even a hatred there a little bit. And she doesn't trust men. Ah, oh, another thing I relate to about Erica. <laughs> and she's sort of right not to trust men. Or to not trust Walter in particular. Um, yeah. She follows Walter after practice one day. Um, he he tells her, in because he becomes her student, and he confesses his obsession and love for her. He says that he can't stop thinking about her. And she follows him to the ice rink where he plays hockey. And that'll be a very important setting uh, later on in the film. And again, I, I come back to the contradictions of Erica. She's intense but she's also so infantile, like I said earlier, you know, and it shows up in the, these scenes throughout the film where her mom always has to call her and know where she is. And um, before one rehearsal, Erica is just pleading with her not to call because it makes her look like a little girl. And so she's so infantile in that way, even though she's in her 40s. But Isabel Hubert just beautifully inhabits those contradictions that she can be so brutal and dominant and then she, against her students who are who are children and then she can almost resemble her students and resemble a teenager resemble a child um because she herself is always monitored by her, her mother and she can't escape it you know and in another really graphic scene about sex, she goes to a drive-in movie theater and she watches a couple in their car having sex. And um, it's such an intense experience for her. I mean, you would think with Erica that maybe her emotional or transcendent experiences would come through playing the piano, you know, playing Schubert or whatever. And instead, her really intense emotional revelatory moments come through sex 
whether it's watching the porn video or it's watching these two people have sex in their car, she just squats down beside the car and pees right there. And there are tears coming down her eyes as she listens to them moaning in the car. And her tears are just pouring down. Um, she can only watch these things. She can never partici participate in them. And the man in the car does see her and he confronts her and she runs away. It's this very intense scene. Like as it was happening, I could, I could not believe what I was watching. That's my whole experience with this film. I can't believe what I'm watching. Like I couldn't believe that this was put on the screen. I can't believe that Hanukkah did this. I can't believe that Isabel Hubert did this, that she had the bravery and the guts to put this kind of character on the screen to do these things to completely open herself up in this way it's brutal it's just so brutal Ugh. she bears both her body and her soul right because there is nudity in the film at times or like when she's cutting her genitals, even though we don't see that, she's still exposing her body to some extent. But then she also really exposes her soul. And this is such an interior role. Erica doesn't talk a lot. She doesn't say a lot. It's so much more about her body language and her face. Like in the scene where she's watching Walter interact with a female student during a rehearsal. I think her name's Anna. And you can see her surprise and her jealousy. You can see it cross over her face when he's talking to that girl. Um, she can't stand it. And we see the lengths that her violence will go. That she does not just inflict violence on herself. She inflicts it on the people around her. Which we kind of already knew when we saw what she did to her mom. But after that rehearsal... She goes to that girl's coat and um, first of all, she breaks a glass. Um, she puts it in a scarf and she steps on it. And that sound of the glass breaking is so visceral for me. Like, ugh, when I hear the sound of breaking glass, it's just, ooh, I can't handle it. And then she puts those shards into that girl's coat pocket. So that when that girl puts her hand in the pocket, her hand will be shredded. And it is. And we hear the scream when it happens. And you know what Erica's done. You know that she's taken something from this girl. Not just as she inflicted violence on her. She's taken away her ability to play the piano or take part in the show. And later on, Erica will stand in for that girl. Or she's going to. It's just such a gruesome scene, not just for the blood, but for the cruelty. I mean, this is the depths of Erica's self-hatred. And it shows us what Erica is capable of and the way she hurts, not just herself, but other people. And after that scene, there's another really important scene, which is the bathroom scene. Because Erica flees to the bathroom after the girl, you know, screams and all of that. And Walter follows her and they start to kiss. But 
she's almost limp with him. I mean, at times she reciprocates, but most of the time she's very limp and lifeless. And she refuses to surrender to him or to let him have any kind of power over her. And she immediately, after a little while, she immediately takes over and becomes dominant again. She will not let him have intercourse with her. This is a this is a difficult scene and it goes on for a while. And it's often depicted in the posters for the film. It's that central of a scene where he has her on the floor and they're kissing. And it would almost look like this romantic swoon, right? But it's nothing of the kind. This is not normal love. This is not normal romance. This is two people like who don't even know what they're doing. Um, and are sort of toxic for each other, right? It's really not a romantic film at all. This is not a romantic film. This is just a brutal film. It's not about romance. It's not about love. It's just about really broken, wounded people who do not know how to connect or love or be vulnerable or or anything it's it's a violent film in that way about the violence we can do to each other in very personal ways but she will not let him have sex with her she won't at first she starts to rub his penis and then she starts to give him a blow job but she refuses to finish and i'm sorry i have to say these things in these terms but this is what's happening i have to describe it to you she doesn't finish him off, though. She doesn't let him have release. She forces him to show his erection to her while she looks. And what struck me about this scene, watching it again, is that this scene is such a reversal of gender roles. And that's why I think, especially maybe in the second half of the film, I think there's something we're being shown something about gender relations, I think, when it comes to sex. But this scene in particular is a reversal of gender roles and says something about gender relations that men are not used to being told what to do in these interactions. They call the shots. Their pleasure is centered. Their gaze is catered to. But Erica is the one gazing in this scene. She's the one telling him what to do. And she is the one withholding and refusing. She is the one maintaining her power. She refuses to abdicate her power. And he goes along with it. But I think the threat of violence is always there in these kinds of interactions. He says at one point that she's hurting him. You know, because he wants to just have sex with her. He wants to just have normal, you know, sex. I guess they would call it vanilla, right? Just normal vanilla sex. He wants to get it over with. Um, and she won't do that. She won't give in to that. And he says that she's hurting him. But really, he could hurt her at any time. He could rape her at any time. They're in a bathroom. Nobody's around. She's very petite. Isabel Hubert's tiny. Um, she's so small compared to him. She could scream and alert people but I think the threat of violence is always there just as it's acted out later in the film so she has power to a certain extent she only has power that he allows her to have because he could easily just take 
what he wants. But he doesn't until later. And he says after this encounter that next time will be better. And of course, that's sort of, I think, a sign that he'll take control. That he's only letting her have control and power for a little while. But eventually, he'll get it back from her. Like a woman can only have what a man allows her to have in sex or in a sexual interaction. That it's, there has to be a give and take, but what if there's only take? What if there's no give? You get what I'm saying? And I think that interaction reveals some of that. That she's playing the part of being in power and being dominant, but how long will he let that continue? And we see near the end, or at the end, that he refuses to let her maintain that power and dominance. That he has to take it back from her. And then we see the very dark side of Walter come out. And during that interaction in the bathroom, that's also when she gives him a list of all her fantasies that she wants to act out. And that's a really important part of the film is that Erica has never done this before. She's never shared her fantasies um, with anybody. But she thinks that Walter is the person that she can share that with. And I have to tell you, I still think it's delusional that she ever thought Walter was the person to do this with. He's so... (laughs) He's so unimaginative. He's like so boring and average and normal. There's no way he was ever going to be able to enact her fantasies in any possible way, you know? And she wants to have sex with Walter. I think that's clear, but she refuses to have any kind of closeness or intimacy with him. Um, They don't really connect, and it's not clear why he's attracted to her, but he is. And during one of their practices, he he asks why she doesn't let them be closer. And that's also when she gives him the letter that contains her desires and the fantasy of what she wants him to do to her. He wants to go away for a weekend, but she refuses to. She has something that she has to do with her mom. He tells her to let go, to let herself feel emotions. And this is actually an important scene. I think nobody talks about it. But this is the scene where I think we learn more about Erica, you know, because when he tells her that, he tells her, let go, you know, be emotional, you know, feel your emotions, surrender to your emotions. She responds, quote, I have no feelings. Get that into your head. And if I ever do, they won't win out over my intelligence, unquote. That's Erica. That is Erica. She's telling him the brutal truth right in that moment. I have no feelings. She doesn't feel. She doesn't seem to be a person that feels the way other people do. But like she says, even if she does feel, even if she does have emotions, she'll never let them get the best of her. They will never override her intellect. She will always have control over them. She will always have that power over them. They will never have power over her. And that's a big thing for Erica. 
is to not let her emotions get the best of her or have any kind of control over her. And of course, when you tamp down your emotions and you can't feel and you can't feel for other people, then you can't have love and you can't have connection. So she can never have those things if she refuses to let herself feel anything or have any emotions. She feels nothing. I mean, maybe she feels something for her mother. It's not It's not clear, but it seems much more disturbing what she feels for her mother. I wouldn't say what she feels for her is love. I don't know if I would categorize that as love. What happens between the two of them? It's these two women who are sort of stuck with each other, who are trapped with each other, and they can't get out of the situation. And they're just sort of trapped there together in that apartment and they resent each other and the hatred between them festers um and boils over and just infects their life i think that hatred and that resentment that they feel for each other that they can't really live with each other but they really can't live without each other either and so that's an interesting aspect to it i think that emotion is what allows us to love and it allows us to connect you have to feel things you have to feel something for another person you have to feel something for yourself and if you don't i think it makes connection very very hard and that's why her and walter will never be in love they'll never be together um because she's so inside her mind this is a woman almost trapped in her mind to the point where she is disconnected from people. And something that I asked myself as as I was watching the film was, how can this woman feel Schubert so deeply, but not feel any kind of love or tenderness? That she can feel music in this particular way, but she can't feel anything for other people. And that is always the danger, I think of being so hyper-intellectual, of being so defined by your intellect that it can disconnect you with other parts of yourself that might be more emotional or might be more out of control, right? And so sometimes you'll have that with certain people that they might feel art, they might connect to a book or a song, or a movie, but that doesn't necessarily make them a more humane person because they don't have that same intensity of feeling for other people. You get what I'm saying? And that's also a fear that I have, that I feel art more than, that I feel more for art than I feel for people. And I've always felt that way. There's always felt so connected to art you know, to books and, and language and cinema and music. And then I don't have any, I don't have that same intensity of emotion for other people. I don't have these very deep, lasting, rich relationships with other people or this deep connection with other people. I feel more connected to art. And so that's also something I could relate to about Erica is that she's so within her own mind and intellect that she can't get out of it and she and it disconnects her from other people. 
And that's also something that I struggle with or that I fear that I put art above people. That art matters to me more than people do. And so while I have these films and I have these books and things like that, I don't have friendships. I don't have relationships. I don't have the things that you really need in your life that that are enriching and important and beautiful. And um, that's something that scares me. But I do see that in Erica. But at the same time, I do think that in giving Walter this letter of her fantasies and desires, that she's really bearing her soul. As I said earlier, sexuality is deeply important to Erica. Her sexual fantasies and desires are a central part of who she is. Um, it's a very personal, intimate, private part of her that she keeps hidden. And so I think for her to reveal it is really an act of vulnerability and bravery on her part. That she's being vulnerable with another person in a way that she's never been. And that is the only way you can connect to people is to be vulnerable, to be open, to be in a place where you could be hurt. And that's what she's doing. She's putting herself in that position. She's exposing this part of herself that is deeply um, important to her and deeply crucial to her identity. And she's laying it all out there for this person. You know, sex is so much more than sex. And that's what I think some directors can get wrong about it when they try to put it on a film is that they make it just about sex because of course they're often coming from the male gaze perspective they're coming from the male perspective but sex is more than just this action it's more than just you know what you see in a porn movie that is like so devoid of any kind of emotion or you know when erica's watching that film you know and we see some of the film it's like so vulgar in a way it's just like it's just mechanical it's just this woman doing this motion and this action and there's nothing more to it that's what i think makes porn what it is is that there's no emotion there's no anything else to it it's just this mechanical action that the actors perform but sex is more than that sex is always a terrifying exposure and especially for erica that's what it is it is an exposure, not just in terms of her body, um, but of her soul and of the desires that she has and the desires that she's sort of terrified of and that she keeps hidden. But with this particular person, this Walter, she shares all of it and she's really just cutting herself open metaphorically you know in the bathroom she cut herself physically you know but with this action of sharing the letter of her fantasies and desires she's cutting herself open emotionally and she's making it so that she can be hurt she's vulnerable in this act 
he was not the person to share that with, you know, not at all. And she definitely realizes that, I think, too late. Um, But for her, this is a profound act of exposure and vulnerability. And he obviously doesn't appreciate how important it is to her. For instance, when he shows up at her house after she's given him the letter and he follows her home. So interesting, that reversal, how earlier in the film she was following him to his hockey game and then now he's following her back to her apartment. Both of these are people who engage in very toxic behavior, following one another and and all of that. They go into I think I think it's Erica's room um and they put a dresser in front of the door so that her mother can't get in and and he and it's sort of a reenactment of the scene in the bathroom where he embraces her and her body goes limp she she is very passive and her passivity in these moments is quite striking when you compare them to the way she is at other times in the film when she's very powerful and dominant, especially when she's talking to her students or when she's interacting with anybody, but with Walter and when he tries to kiss her and when he tries to get close to her, she goes limp. She's almost lifeless. He still hasn't read the letter. You know, this letter is the, the centerpiece of her life. I mean, this letter is everything to her the fact that she's written it that she has shared it with him it's probably all she can think about and he's completely uninterested in it and I think what his disinterest says is that he's not concerned with her desires like most men only his matter even now even in this day and age look what we're seeing with the me too movement we're seeing women speak up about how men treat them how men think that they are entitled not just to women's bodies but to women's time to women's attention to everything about women men think that they are entitled to it and that it should belong to them that if they want to touch a woman's breast if they want to touch a woman's body if they want to make crude comments if they want to violate, you know, a woman's body, whatever. If they want to scream at a woman the way Jeffrey Tambor did to Jessica Walter with the whole arrested development thing that's come out recently. Um, scream at women, berate women, inappropriately touch women the way Morgan Freeman has been accused of by multiple women. Very egregious things and violating things. That's what Me Too is partly about. It's not just, um, no, that that's what it's about. It's about women speaking about this and finally saying um, that male desire or what men want is not the most important thing, that it should not, that male desire should not, um, I'm not wording it right, it shouldn't, um, be central because that's what it's about it's about men wanting something and taking it because they want it and me too is about speaking about that 
resisting it, condemning it, you know. And I know Me Too doesn't really fit into a discussion of the piano teacher. Um, it doesn't really fit in very well um, at all. <laughs> but, um, but for me, Me Too is also about gender relations. It's about what happens between a man and a woman when they're alone. And what is expected of a woman. And what happens during sex, sexual intercourse whose desires are prioritized who's who is holding the power in that we saw that with the Aziz Ansari story that came out and how the woman who wrote it felt like she couldn't leave she felt like she was being coerced and a lot of people attacked her for what she wrote but if Me Too is going to truly be radical or revolutionary, I think it has to include a spectrum of experiences from violent rape, obviously, to more subtle interactions between men and women that are not seen as harmful or they're not noticed in the way that they should be. But nevertheless, they need to be brought to the light. And we need to talk about how do men and women interact with each other? What happens when a man and woman are alone together? What happens within sex between men and women, right? All of this matters. Gender relations matter. The way women's desire is treated matters. And I think what we see in this scene, it's not really connected to me too at all. Um, I don't think. I don't know. I'm not good at talking about this stuff. Ugh, I feel really uncomfortable. But what I'm trying to say... But I feel a lot when I watch this film. And there's so much that I want to say about it. There's things that I relate to about it. And I think other women possibly relate to it as well. But something that struck me about this scene where he doesn't even read the letter. He, do, he hasn't read it. He doesn't want to read it. Is to me, it's a dismissal of Erica's desire. It's a dismissal of female desire and, and won't. And how so often women are not allowed a space to talk about their desires and their fantasies and what they want. That it's just assumed that they will do whatever the man wants. And that the man's desire is what is central. And that's what matters. That's what we saw in the Aziz Ansari interaction. Was that even though she was sending him signals that she was not interested, his desire mattered more than her desire not to engage in sex with him. And that's much more relatable, I think, for a large swath of women than maybe a really violent rape. The, the more subtle interactions that dismiss women that marginalize women, that make women feel silenced and make them feel like they don't matter and their desire doesn't matter, that can have profound consequences. And it matters. This this conversation matters. And it really bothered me when he wouldn't read the letter. That she, this was such an exposure for her and he didn't have the time to care. And he just wants sex. That's what he wants, what's on that porn video, right? He just wants the act. I mean, even it's interesting now that I'm thinking about it, how in their interactions, they almost reenact that porn video 
how she, and there's a scene later on where she's giving him a blowjob. I hate even saying these terms. I feel so, like, crazy. Ugh. I don't like talking about sex, and yet I end up talking about sex on this podcast way too much. Um, it's interesting how it almost turns into a porn video between them, at least when it comes to what he wants, because all he wants is sex, you know. I mean, he, he makes these claims that he wants to be close to her, that he loves her, but he doesn't really indicate at any point in the film that he loves or cares about her, or that he has any interest in her desires or wants. It's much more about his pleasure at all times. He wants sex, plain and simple. She wants a fantasy played out. This elaborate fantasy in her mind and that she's written down. She wants an experience. He just wants to fuck. That's the crudest way that I can put it, but that is the way these two are. And the audience can see it so clearly, but she can't. I think that she is keeping him at bay. And I don't know if other people, if we're supposed to infer this, I got the sense that she was a virgin. I got the sense that she was not sexually experienced at all. I don't know if other people interpreted it that way or anything like that, but that's the sense I got. I don't know if we're supposed to. But um, even though I think she's not sexually experienced, I think she knows that as soon as he has her, as soon as they consummate their relationship and she lets him have sex with her, I think she knows that he'll be done with her and on to the next girl or the next woman. And so I think part of why she withholds from him and why she strings him along is because she knows that that withholding gives her a form of power over him. Because as soon as he gets what he wants, he won't want it anymore. Like that really great whole song, right? What is it? When they get what they want, they never want it again? I can't remember what... I should know what song that's in. <laughs> but I can't remember. I love that line. I love whole. So he finally reads the letter. She has to force him, right? And she watches him as he's reading it. And you can just feel the exposure. You can just feel how naked, even though she's fully clothed and clothed in the scene, she is completely naked in front of him through this letter. So exposed and vulnerable. And he reads some of it out. She wants to be tied up. She wants to be gagged. <sighs> Why must I say this? She wants... <laughs> She wants to stick her tongue in his butt. <laughs> That's what she wants to do. Um, oh, I'm sorry, I'm putting you through this. He laughs as he reads it, and he's shocked. And... That's when Erica gets out her box of ropes that's hidden under her bed. And, um... I don't, I don't even think you have to be into S&M or anything like that to feel something in this scene because this is a complete exposure for her and what she is doing and he laughs he laughs at her the humiliation of it right it's so humiliating she is bearing her soul to him and she starts to cry saying that she's waited for him 
she's delusional, really, to think that this man can do anything for her. <laughs> He's like so mediocre uh, to me. Don't get me wrong, Benoit is gorgeous. He's a very attractive man. But his character in this film is just so ordinary. I don't know why, but she thinks he's the one who can bring her desires out of her mind and into reality. That's what she sees in him. Um, he's almost like her savior, in a way. And she's showing her innermost feelings to him. And she wants this violence to be done to her body. And for some unknown reason, personally, I can't understand it. I don't do self-harm. I don't cut myself. I don't, I'm not masochistic at all. I fear pain. Like pain terrifies me. I'm a little whiny baby when I'm in pain. Like if I get a really bad hangnail, you know what I mean? Like you don't want to be around me. I'm a whiny baby when it comes to pain. I hate it. But for her pain, pain inflicted and violence inflicted on her body becomes some kind of some form of pleasure for her. We're not sure why. Um, but that's just who she is. That's what she wants. But I think she has so obviously misjudged this guy. He's not the one. He can't accept what she has revealed to him. He thinks she's sick. He says that she needs treatment. He's completely disgusted and repulsed by her. And I think she knows that she has made a major misstep that he could he can't handle it. He's not the person who can handle it. And so after he leaves, she's in bed that night with her mom. And this is another very disturbing scene in this film. The disturbing scenes accumulate throughout the film. It's just this wave after wave of neurosis and perversion. Um... And yet I love it. <laughs> like, what does it say about me that I like this film? It just goes there. It goes, like, you have to respect Hanukkah to some extent. You have to respect any director and any actress, too, who would go to this place. Who would go, that's going to take you places that you have never been as you watch a film. It's sort of breathtaking where they went and that they ever did it and that it ever got funded and that it ever got distributed. It is insane that this film um, ever happened, right? Like, I still can't believe it. But she's in bed that night with her mother, you know, because they sleep beside each other in the same room. Um, her mother is like furious at her. She's basically calling her a slut and a whore. She thinks that when Erica was alone with Walter in the room that they had sex, you know. And then all of a sudden, Erica jumps on her mother. And she starts kissing her. She says she loves her. She holds her mother down as though she wants to rape her. And then Erica starts to sob. And she gets off her mother. Her mother's calling her crazy, saying she's out of her mind. We do not know the source of Erica's pain, but in this scene, that pain is so clear that something has happened to her. She has been deeply traumatized and wounded by something in her life because she is, she has gone over the edge. That was so, 
outrageous inappropriate isn't even the word right to try to like have sex with your mother and then all of a sudden she like raises her mother's nightgown up and looks at her genitals and oh my god I'm just like what this there's no vocabulary for this film right there isn't how do you even talk about this how do you interpret it what I like about Hanukkah, and I think he said this in some interview, he wants people to be open to these interpretations. He wants people to watch his films and get whatever they get from it. And he feels that any interpretation is valid. And if he disagrees with your interpretation, that's also valid. That it's all valid to some extent, whatever you get from it. I think that Isabel. Perhaps the only person that she does feel any kind of love or tenderness or connection with is her mother. And that somehow that love has gotten eroticized for her in some way. Or she feels like the kind of person Erica does who has to push the limits. That the only way she feels alive is when she is doing something so extreme like smelling you know, a tissue in a porn booth or watching people have sex in their car or cutting herself in the genitalia. It's like she has to live this ex- these extreme experiences in order for her to feel something, in order for her to feel alive in some way. She has to flirt with danger. I guess that would be the word that she has to push the limits and push the limits um, until there is no limit and then go beyond the limit um, of what is decent and what is moral and what is acceptable. (laughs) Um, She has to like hurt herself and she has to hurt other people because maybe only through pain can she feel anything because she doesn't seem to feel anything at other times. She needs that pain, I guess, to to feel alive or to remind her that she's alive. I don't know. Erica is such a brutal character, but she's also very mysterious. We don't totally understand her. Maybe we're not supposed to. That's not the point. You're not supposed to understand Erica. You're just supposed to maybe watch her and try to just accept what you're seeing. Like, come to terms with it in some way that I bet there is a there are women like this I would imagine there could be I mean the book itself is written by a woman and she takes from her own experience so but of course Hanukkah manipulates it and takes what he wants from the book and shapes it the way he wants to I mean we're getting a very male perspective on all of this but I still think Isabel Hubert keeps it grounded and authentic. I do think she brings something very powerful to that role. And the thing about the near the end of this film is that it is one sort of horrific scene after another. That's why I have to talk about all of them. It's just one after another. It's like, um... She tries to rape her mother and then she shows up at Walter's hockey practice. They go into a room at the ice rink and 
now Erica has made this complete reversal. Whereas before she was dominant, she was powerful. She was not going to give in to what he wanted and his desires. She was, in a way, putting her own desire first before him. Now that she's been rejected by him, she completely changes. She says she'll never write a letter like that again. She only cares about what he wants. She becomes desperate. And that's something that's sort of shocking to see in Erica, that desperation for him. Although I guess you could argue there were other moments of desperation. Um, she says that she'll be normal. She's so hungry for whatever he has to give, I guess, for his love and attention. She's willing to do anything for it. And they try to have sex. Um... She tries to give him a blowjob, but, um, but she starts to vomit. She's not able to finish. She, she vomits. So it's this very abject scene. It's like his pants are down. She's vomiting. It's, she cleans her mouth out and it's so weird. It's like, I could almost imagine the smell of the vomit in the room. Like that's the kind of scene that this is. And this is the scene that I was talking about earlier that lasted like seven or eight minutes and it was a continuous shot. So from the the moment she gets to the hockey rink and he sees her to the moment they're back there doing this scene, there is no cutting. There is no editing. The scene was done in one take. It had to be done that way. So if something messed up or there was an error, the actors had to start over again and do the scene. And, um, it's just a, tr it's an astonishing scene, everything that happens, but it's like you could smell the vomit in the room. That's how visceral this film gets at times where you, you almost feel like you're there. It's that raw. I mean, that's what Isabel Huber does. She just puts it out there. Like she's so brave and fearless in this role. You know, at times she's this very vulnerable woman with tears in her eyes she had tears in her eyes when she was when he was reading that letter and she had tears in her eyes when she was listening to him play Schubert and so there's these deep moments of intense emotion that come through her face and then there's like and then there's moments of violence and fury like when she's attacking her mother and trying to have sex with her mother and then there's scenes like this where she's so desperate and so abject and vomiting and I think I'll always be haunted by how after this scene because he treats her like dirt he absolutely I mean I don't care what you feel about Erica he treats her like shit and it pisses me off it really does it's just gross the way that he treated her in that scene the way he treats her throughout the film, I think, is gross. Men are gross. But after this scene, God, this terrible scene of humiliation. Oh my God, I can feel it. I feel the humiliation of it, I think. It's like she runs out into the skating rink. And nobody's on it. Just this one girl who's ice skating. And you just see Erica. And it's the way Isabel's walking. It's like, again, this is an actress who... 
she acts with her whole body and soul. That's what I say about Isabel Hubert. It's in her face. It's in her body. It's in the way she walks. It's in her eyes. This character almost possesses her and like uses her as a conduit, right? Like Isabel is just the body that the character possesses, but, um, she's walking out into the skating rink and she's just be just blurring into the whiteness and there's something so heartbreaking about it of every scene in this film and so many you'll see you'll see different pictures from the film online you know people who take screenshots but for me this is one of the most powerful of her body just disappearing and blurring into the whiteness of the ice skating rink i think something dies in her yeah or something has started to die in her with that moment of that scene of humiliation of what she had exposed what she had shown him and he had just smashed it and dismissed it and laughed at it and just ruined her I think I think he so humiliated her that she had taken this massive step to trust him to write the letter you know I'm not saying Erica is some kind of like heroine or that I look up to her I'm not saying that but my god I mean what Isabel Huber and Hannah could do is they take this character who is so irredeemable in so many ways so horrific and violent and destructive and they find the humanity of her and it's there and you see it and you feel it and you don't expect to you may have nothing in common with this character but there is a pain when you watch her go into that whiteness you can tell this is someone who is starting to dwindle starting to diminish that something has happened to this woman, that something started happening to her probably from the time she was a child, that something has been slowly killing her, and she has been slowly killing herself. But you don't know exactly what the root of it is. Maybe you don't need to know. It reminds me a bit of Abbas Kurostami's film Taste of Cherry, where it's about this man in Iran, that's where it's set, driving around trying to find someone who will bury him after he commits suicide you never know why he wants to commit suicide you have no idea and that's the strength of the film for me is that it keeps that mystery there you don't need to know but you can relate to it in some way you can relate to that despair that hopelessness that the main character has so there's something similar going on here in this film, The Piano Teacher. You have no idea why Erica is the way she is. You don't. I mean, Hanukkah, in an interview with Criterion, he said that he um, he did have a mother-daughter in the film as sort of a parallel to Isabel and her mother. It's the young girl, Anna, the one that um, Erica put the glass in the pocket because that girl was a teenager and she was a piano student and her mother is very hard on her and wants her to do very well. So there may be a little bit of a hint in that relationship that perhaps from a very young age there was a lot expected from Erica and she 
was terrified to fail and terrified not to be perfect and terrified not to be disciplined and in control of herself. Um, and maybe some of it comes from that. We don't know exactly. But God, that scene at the hockey place, I'm just like, oh, that hits me hard, that scene. I don't know why. It's just, it's so humiliating. It's so humiliating. It's so hard to see this woman who just a few scenes before was in complete control and was dominant when they were in the bathroom together and she withheld and she refused to give in to him on his terms. She wanted to do it on her terms. She was adamant about that. And then to see her in this scene where she is completely um, helpless powerless it's really sad she's desperate you know and then um this is a really hard scene the next one to watch it's just scene after scene that's hard to watch that's what this film is um i'm sort of shocked that i chose to talk about it but i think i had to talk about it how can you not talk about this film it's insane it's it's insane not to talk about like i have to do it but Walter shows up at her home, and this is the scene of the rape. And this is just, this was, if, I remem- if I'm remembering right, this was another sort of long shot, or had a few long shots in it. Walter shows up, he locks her mother away, and he attacks Erica. And he claims to be acting out her fantasies. Remember in her letter, she talked about wanting to be tied up and gagged and there was also in the letter something about her mother being in in the next room or something. So he claims in his violent outbursts to just be enacting her fantasies, that that's all it is. But this is something very different. This is not a controlled environment with two adults who are consenting and who are willingly participating in a sexual experience or a sexual act. This is really an eruption of male violence. He hits Erica very hard to the point where she's bleeding. Her nose is bleeding. Blood is like everywhere. Her mother's screaming and terrified. But the whole point of it is not to enact her fantasies. The point of it is that he finally gets what he wants and how he wants it. The thing that he wanted in the bathroom that day and that she wouldn't give to him. And he was bound and determined that he was going to get it from her no matter what. And if she didn't give it willingly, he was going to take it from her. And that's what he does with Erica on the ground, limp, as he rapes her. So this has nothing to do with enacting her sadomasochistic desires or fantasies because he made very clear he wasn't interested in them. This is about him getting what he wanted the whole time. And he gets it by raping her. And it is a horrific scene to watch. This film is not for the faint of heart, that is for sure. I still don't know how I've watched it twice. I may have watched it three times. I don't know. It is so brutal to watch that. And Isabel just, I don't know how she did it. And of course he blames her for the whole thing. 
He says she humiliated him, that she led him on. It's every excuse in the book under, you know, patriarchy and misogyny. Every, every excuse in the book. You did this to me. You caused it. This is your fault. Again, I think this is a film at times about gender relations. And other people may have very different interpretations from me. I do not claim to be heavily knowledgeable about feminist theory or anything like that. Though I do consider myself a feminist and I do care about social issues and social justice and I care about race, gender, class, things like that. It doesn't come up in every single film that I talk about. It's not my sole focus when I'm talking about a film. But for me watching this, I felt, I just felt like, I'm not saying Hanukkah was purposefully saying something about gender relations, but I think it's there. I think this is a look at male violence, at misogyny, at, at at all of that. And I think you see it in some of these scenes that he wanted to punish her for not giving him what he wanted or not giving it to him the way he wanted her to. So he was going to take it no matter what. And that's what he did. And so, of course, now I have to talk about the ending. I know this episode has gotten long. (laughs) Um, The ending. I don't even know how to talk about it. It was so shocking the first time I saw it. And what's interesting, or what's really surprising, I think. I say interesting too much, I know. What's surprising is that watching the film... The ending still retains its power to shock you. That it's still just... Oh my god. What I got from this scene, or what I saw in it that I didn't see the first time, was some of the parallels to The Passion of Joan of Arc by Carl Theodore Dreyer. And I have an episode where I talk about that film. It's based on a lot of close-ups. It's composed of a lot of close-ups of Falconetti. And when, and when Isabel Hubert, right before she stabs that knife into her chest, there is this look on her face that, I don't know, I still can't even put it into words, but it reminded me of seeing Falconetti in The Passion of Joan of Arc, like this anguish in her face, but also almost this beauty or this light, or this like, um, I don't know, I can't put it into words, I wish I could, um, like this mystical thing in her eyes, um, it's breathtaking, like, it's unspeakable, when Isabel does that, and then she like, bares her teeth, and she just makes this twisted look on her face, Oh, God, this scene. You know, everyone's gone. Walter has just passed her and smiling. The night before he raped her, just 
just the day before this recital, or maybe it's a few days, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know the timeline, but at some point, you know, he had just raped her and he walks by her smiling, says that he can't wait to hear her because she's taken the place of Anna, the girl who put her hand in the broken glass. She's taken her place at like a show or a recital or whatever. It's like a student thing. And he walks past her saying that and smiling with his friends. It's horrific. And everybody's gone out of the lobby. She's in the lobby, remember? She's completely alone and she takes the knife out of her pa- her bag that she had packed. She packed the knife in there. Now, of course, when she put that knife in her bag, we thought it was maybe intended for Walter, right? I always did. I never thought that she would stab herself. Although, it's so obvious now, right? I mean, the whole film, she has inflicted violence on herself. So, of course, the ending would be like this. But you thought maybe it was for Walter. You know, she was so mad and wanted that revenge for him raping her. And it's interesting to note that just, you know, the last year or so, she was in L which is about a woman who's raped and who seeks revenge against her rapist. And so it's sort of interesting to think about the parallels between that a little bit. But that's what you think when you see the knife, is that it's intended for Walter. But of course it's intended for her. And just that her face before she stabs herself, it's just almost transcendent. Like, I don't even know how to put it into words. Like, she has realized something. Or, or I don't know. That will go down in history as, like, one of the most powerful scenes ever. And, of course, her performance is one of the greatest ever. But her face right before she stabs herself, I can't even put it into words. As you can tell, I'm struggling. And she, she just does one stab, and it's so sudden and un, unexpected. I didn't expect it. Maybe some of you did. And the blood blooms above her breast, and you just see that red spreading across her blouse. It's done. And maybe she's done what she wanted to do the whole time or what she'd been wanting to do for a long time. As I said at the beginning, this is a woman trying to obliterate herself. But I don't think she does it alone. I don't know if she is her own killer. I think she's obliterated by a lot of different things in her life. Maybe by her father dying in the asylum. Maybe by her mother who was too controlling and possessive. By Walter who was manipulative, I think. And a rapist. He raped her. So I think she's obliterated not just by herself but by the world she inhabits. The people who are in that world the way they treat her, the things that they do to her, but she's not innocent in any of this, right? I mean, she has done so much violence to other people. Whether it's Anna, you know, with her hand in the glass, or her mother who she tried to hurt, 
she's done a lot of violence to other people, but she does the most violence to herself. There is something that she hates about herself. You can tell. And, um, and she finally obliterates herself and kills herself, you know. I mean, we don't know. She, she stabs herself and then she walks out of the theater into the night. We don't know what happens to her. I would assume that that is like a mortal wound, you know, that she has killed herself and but she keeps walking. I mean, it's the most shocking scene I think I've ever, it's one of those where you, you should see it without knowing what's going to happen. You should see it for the first time and, and you should feel that shock. Again, Hanukkah makes violence visceral. He makes us feel it. He makes us sensitive to it. He, he awakens us and shocks us with this act of violence. But I think I think the film asks us to think about what led to this. What were the experiences that led Erica to this moment? And it wasn't just her by herself. There were a lot of things that conspired in her life to make her who she was and to destroy her in a lot of ways, to destroy this woman. Um who then destroys herself. But this is a very powerful film. I mean, I don't have any, like, overarching thoughts to share with you. Like, I have no big conclusions or, or anything like that. It's just one of those films. And I've I've shared all of it with you. I've put my heart and soul out there. Um, and why I feel sometimes a personal connection to it. Um... And why I think it's just so powerful. One of the most powerful films about violence. About men and women. And sexual relations. And gender relations. And just this woman. Like this character that I've never seen before. Who is so contradictory. And so complicated. And so repulsive. And disgusting at times. Um, She's all of it. She's all of it at once. And that's really powerful to me, I think, that she is all these things. And um, I think she's always also fighting for some sort of power in her life. That it's like everybody around her has power over her, whether it's her mother or whatever. Especially her mother. Her mother has so much power over her and controls her and wants to know where she is all the time and is calling and she never has that power and I think she tries to find power and find dominance through other means. She's just at the same time she's always subjugated in her own life. Other people always have power over her to some extent but she's always fighting to get it back but then at the end it's just over you know. Such an intense brutal film like there's no words for it so I mean, yeah, I'm done. <laughs> I'm done. I've gone on long enough and talked about enough stuff. Um, but thanks so much for listening. I hope that you liked this episode. I know it was long. I know it was intense and graphic at times. I appreciate you sticking with me. We got through it, okay? <laughs> I'll try not to talk about these things anymore, but I had to talk about some graphic things so I appreciate you going on this journey with me as I talked about this film it's very intense and there's 
nothing else like it that I've seen personally. So it's just one of those films that I think will always haunt me to some extent. So I'll stop here. Thanks for listening. Until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now.